Hello, I'm Lily Hyam. And I'm Gordon Johnston. Welcome to the Last Question podcast, a production of DataFest, the ongoing series of data and artificial intelligence innovation events run by the Data Lab, Scotland's innovation centre for data and AI, hosted by the University of Edinburgh. This is an incredibly exciting episode of The Last Question for us. Today, we are joined by Dr. Giovanna Giordino, an astronomer at the European Space Agency, currently working on the James Webb Space Telescope project. Dr. Giardino is an instrument scientist with a particular focus on the formation of galaxies and preparation of spectroscopic observations of the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. For anyone who may have missed it or if you've been living under a rock for the last couple of months, the James Webb Space Telescope is a collaboration between NASA, the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency. It's the world's most powerful space telescope, made up of 18 gold-plated hexagonal mirrors that give an unparalleled vision deep into the cosmos. It's currently around 1.5 million kilometres from Earth in Lagrange Point 2, with a Lagrange Point being an area of equilibrium for a small object between two much larger objects. So in other words, the telescope stays in place because it's in a sweet spot between the Earth and the Sun, which allows it to stay in a relatively fixed position in relation to the Earth. The Webb will be able to study galaxies 13.5 billion light-years away, which is only a few hundred years after the dawn of time. It produces its stunning images using infrared technology to capture light from some of the earliest and most distant luminous objects we've ever seen. Uh, so Gordon, do you know how to use a telescope? Uh, no, I don't. You should look into it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no laughter, um, it's just like <laughs> silence. <laughs> The 18 hexagons that make up the telescope's mirror reminds me of the Library of Babel in the short story of the same name. In the story, there's a library that's made up of an infinite number of interconnected hexagons, each one containing volumes of 410-page books, which contain every possible combination of a set of 25 standard characters. So in theory, the library contains all the possible knowledge, past, present and future, in the entire universe, but it's utterly impossible to parse it out without some kind of guide as to where the correct useful knowledge lies. Uh, In the story, uh, there's this mystical crimson hexagon, which is a room that has almost like a glossary of where you can find everything. It'd be really useful to have that glossary because, um, as we've heard recently, the amount of data that we're receiving from the James Webb Space Telescope is just so just so much it's going to take years and years to be able to process all of it so people are going to have to be patient with getting discoveries from this massive amount of data um we have all this information at our fingertips um but luckily we do have people all over the world who act as a key to unlocking and understanding this information like the librarians of babel and one such librarian of babel it's Dr. Giovanna Giardino. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Giardino. The James Webb Space Telescope has captured the public's imagination in ways we haven't seen in decades. Um, we had the public unveiling of the first images by uh, Joe Biden, the huge displays in Times Square in New York, and the endless news coverage all around the world. Kind of harken back to the space race in the 60s, where the possibilities of space seemed limitless and the, the advancements in space technology and the achievements through those, they were proper like, international news and cause for international celebration. Um, so since the telescope started sending data back to us, what's been the most exciting thing that you've learned? Oh, uh, I think if, 
To be honest, I found that all the images that were first released are very, very interesting and inspiring uh, because uh, they cover such a wide range of uh, the studies that we can make with this uh, very powerful telescope. Uh, so it's very difficult to pick uh, to pick one uh, favorite. Uh, but OK, in a way, my favorite are from the very far and the close by. So in the terms of very far, I really uh, found uh, um, really beautiful and, uh, and you know, shows the, really the potential of this uh, of this machine it was the what we call the deep field. So the image of the cluster of galaxies uh, with the beautiful uh, gravitational lensing. I think there's so much in the image that uh, we can talk for hours. So, uh, and then so we can talk maybe later because uh, there's so much, like I said. And then if you uh, jump, uh, huge jump. So from the very far away galaxies, we are talking uh, uh, 13 billion light years, or uh, really, um, uh, really, you know, the edge of the universe to a certain degree. To our galaxy, the, the neighborhood of our sun, then we have data uh, from uh, uh, exoplanets. So uh, planets that are orbiting our uh, other stars um, than, than, than our sun, so not planets in our solar system, but around our other stars. And that I found fascinating. So these are other worlds that are in, uh, yeah, uh, around us. Speaking of exoplanets, uh, it was just yesterday on the 1st of September that the first uh, image of an exoplanet was released by the, the James Webb, um, the snappily named HIP65426b, um, which is not maybe not one of the, the great planet names, but um, so it's a gas giant around, you know, five to ten times the mass of Jupiter, about 385 light years from Earth in the Centaurus constellation. Um, so one of your areas of research is uh, the preparation of spectroscopic observations of the atmospheres of exoplanets, such as HIP 652-6542-6P. <laughs> we need uh, a nickname. I know. It needs a better name. It needs a way better name. Uh, so just for anyone unfamiliar with the term out there, spectroscopy is the study of the absorption and emission of light and other radiation uh, by matter. Um, could you tell us a bit about how this process works and what we can learn uh, from this kind of information? Yes, yes, yes. So that's a very interesting uh, um, technique. Uh, so spectroscopy, as you know, um, it involves uh, uh, dispersing the light. So just uh, like a prism, when, when, you, when you shine lines through a prism, the prism disperses the light, you see the colors of the visible light, which are the components uh, of our light. And, and if you have uh, something better than a prism that can disperse the light even more, then you start what to you start to see what we call lines, the signatures of elements. So, for instance, you can understand uh, what are the elements on the sun. Uh, if you do spectroscopy of the sun, uh, you know, what, what, what is, uh, how much oxygen there is, how much uh, hydrogen, helium, and so forth. Um, so, for the exoplanets, so we can apply this technique to the observation of exoplanets uh, in a very special way. Uh, some of the exoplanets are aligned in such way that they uh, pass in front of our of their star uh, to our uh, line of sight. And when the uh, planets uh, pass in front of the uh, star, 
part of the lights of the stars is absorbed by the atmosphere of the planets. And the absorption depends on the elements that this plan that the atmosphere of this planet contain and their physical condition um whether um again what, what's the temperature uh that we're talking about the pressure so by looking at this data at this petroscopy data uh during the transit of the of the planet in front of the star we can gain information about the composition of the atmosphere of the planet. And that's a very powerful technique uh, because it allows us to learn about uh, what's going on in this uh, alien world. When you are looking at the data you've got from looking at these exoplanets, is there something, um, like, is there a key finding that you're looking for, some kind of signature of something or a particular well, element? It depends on the planet you're looking for. At uh, the, there was a, famo a famous release uh, for uh, for uh, the uh, observation of uh, CO2 in this gas giant a few weeks uh, uh, before um, a few weeks ago, uh, and that was important because uh, uh, this planet was known from previous studies, uh, and uh, people were trying to understand uh, more about the physical condition and what was going on. So, understand measuring this uh, feature of the CO2, which was a first, allows them to infer um, the um, metallicity, so what type uh, uh, of elements are present and uh, uh, how different it is from a gas giant in our solar system, like uh, Jupiter or, or Saturn. So this is for gas giants, for instance. Uh, going uh, forward, I'm sure uh, Webb will be pointed also towards um, observe a transit of exoplanet that looks more like uh, uh, our Earth, so more rocky, uh, more what we call rocky planets, because uh, they have um, a rock core where we can live on, <laughs> not floating around in the in these guys. And, uh, and then there, of course, uh, uh, the big prize will be looking and, 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 and see elements that uh, we can relate with the composition of our atmospheres. Uh, so oxygen, uh, water, uh, nitrogen, uh, possibly methane and so on. One of your papers is on the impact of cosmic rays on the sensitivity of the James Webb Space Telescope and near spec. Is that how you say it? Near spec, yes. <laughs> how do you mitigate the effect of the noise caused by cosmic rays hitting the telescope and affecting the data negatively? Yeah, yeah, th that's a very good, uh, very good question. Um, this is a challenge that uh, space telescope and, and uh, scientific mission all have to face when you are outside, let's say, the um, the, the, the magnetic belts that uh, uh, that are around our Earth. So here on Earth, we are within this strong magnetic, relatively strong magnetic fields of the of the of our planet that shield us to um, uh, very strong and, very, uh, and, and, and um, large fluxes of uh, these uh, uh, high energy particles that fill the space. Uh, particles come from the sun, particles come from uh, uh, high energy event in our galaxy or outside our galaxy. They are extremely um, uh, high energetic particles. 
Uh, and in fact, it's something that, for instance, astronauts have to deal with and uh, missions to the moon are particularly uh, challenging in that respect because of this radiation. And our instruments uh, suffer from uh, the disturbance that this particle uh, uh, cause by impacting on our detectors and then giving signals that are what we call spurious. They're not, they're not the signal we are looking for. They're just uh, like you call, like you say, noise, uh, nuisance. <laughs> and there are various techniques that uh, that we can uh, employ to to mitigate, uh, to actually detect, so that we can distinguish uh, the hit, uh, the signal from a cosmic ray from a signal from the star. So that's already one way to say, okay, this is not a star. It was just a, a big, uh, shiny pixel because this was hit by a cosmic ray. Uh, and uh, on top of that, the detector of the web uh, are uh, um, well designed to cope with this type of disturbance. Uh, I don't know whether you want me to go into this uh, uh, more technical detail, but uh, we don't take, I mean, a certain camera already works like that even in uh, in in uh, consumer uh, electronics, but we don't uh, take one picture like click uh, and we collapse all the signal. While, while we take a picture, we actually keep accumulating the signal. So the camera is uh, staring to, to a galaxy and we uh, keep looking at the signal. And, uh, and, uh, and so we have, if, if the signal is undisturbed, you have a nice uh, ramp, a nice continuous accumulation of signal. If a cosmic ray hits, you will have a jump in this ramp because that's because the cosmic ray is an instantaneous event. It's not like photons slowly arriving to your detectors from this galaxy. And, and so by looking at these jumps in our recorded signal, we can eliminate the imprint of many cosmic rays, not all of them, but you know, a good, uh, a good fraction. And that allows us to, uh, to have these uh, uh, beautiful images uh, uh, undisturbed by this problem. Is there anything else um, that is also causing noise and errors in the data collection of the telescope, apart from cosmic rays? Uh, uh, well, um, uh, there is a lot of uh, of things that are going on. Okay, detectors are always have noise. Uh, that's the noise of the electronics, uh, and that's uh, designing good detectors means designing uh, detectors with very low noise. Uh, as you can imagine, where by states of the heart, uh, states of the heart detector, right? You 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 have a very expensive telescope, so you you put the best uh, available detectors, uh, and so uh, in terms of uh, detector noise, they are very very uh, good performance. So we have a little, uh, but we do have it, and. Uh, Again, that can be just simple detector noise can be a challenge if your signal are very low. Uh, and, and we're going to go with that for it. It's not in the beautiful image you've seen with the release. These are uh, relatively um, bright objects that were looked at because you want also to test your telescope with, uh, with things you can see well. Um, but uh, but uh, but uh, as you dig down, and, and, and scientists have already started to do that because they want to look at the very um, faint galaxy that you've seen, for instance, in the deep field, right? These are the more furthest objects. They're very interesting to understand how galaxy forms. The people are very exciting. They're digging in. And there, you know, you have to confront it with the detector signal. So, so the detector noise, sorry. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's certainly there. And, and there are, again, techniques. But, but, you know, 
that's where statistics come in. So that's where knowledge of statistics allows you to say, okay, I can trust this point. This is really above my noise. This, this point, it's dodgy. It could be, it's, I'm really fishing into the noise. So normally you will leave it alone and don't trust. Uh, that that's an example. Of course, we have we had noises that are not like noises, but like nothing is perfect. So your telescope, although Webb has a, a fantastic pointing capability, is really really stable when it, it's a, it's a pointed to an object. It's never perfectly stable, so it jitters a bit, and that creates noise because the star is moving a little bit inside your detector which have slightly different response according to which pixel you're looking at. So that's, that's what we call systematics effect, uh, noise, you know, and, and uh, yeah, uh, and there are many, many little things that go and make, it make things complicated. So the life of a scientist is never, <laughs> never very, uh, very simple, uh, quite opposite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very complicated. Um, what are the things that is causing the slight movements within the telescope? Is it the the equipment inside it, the electronics inside? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, when you point the telescope, right, you have action and reaction. So as you point it there, then it will have to stabilize. So it it, it fluctuates a bit. There are thermal effects, I think, which are thermal mechanical, right? Uh, that you know that the telescope, uh, um, it's it's behind this uh, um, huge sun shield, right? The, this uh, this uh, kite uh, kite like structure that is very striking uh, in the web, and this shield uh, um, uh, shields the telescope from the radiation of the sun, uh, the heat of the sun, the heat of the sun and the earth, which are both uh, aligned behind the sun shield, and the telescope is pointed uh, deeper into um, into deep space. So we can, we have the error of this telescope, which is about a 40 Kelvin, which is minus 200, uh, uh, 230 degrees Celsius. And the hot part, the one towards the sun, which is at about plus 80 degrees. So there's a huge thermal uh, gradient, thermal differences between these two shots. And that, as, in the, as, as you can imagine, uh, um, causes uh, uh, mechanical tension and the small movement will change slightly your, your, your thermal distribution and cause movement, movement of your equipment. And that causes vibration. Uh, and they're tiny, they're absolutely tiny. But when you're looking for very tiny signal, uh, that also have an impact. I have no idea the temperature is so extreme. Yeah. How do you dress yeah, for that kind of weather? It is. It is. I, I, I think... I think expect, especially because I come from the instrument side, I, I really uh, go on how uh, a marvel, a marvel, uh, how do you say, a marvel um, instrument it is in terms of engineering. Uh, the telescope, the spacecraft, the instruments on board. Uh, I think. Uh, Really, we pushed the capability in, in, from of, of of our yeah of of, of our species at the moment of, of humanity, uh, and and in that way, I liked that you made this introduction with the Apollo program. 
I mean, it's still small compared to the Apollo program. And of course, there are no asteroids. We are not going anywhere, let's say, in terms of exploration with humans. But it is, a, it is really a large program, a, large, a program that involves the many nations, uh, uh, collaboration across the Atlantic uh, between Europe and America. Canada was also involved. So a lot of expertise uh, from uh, um, many people, engineers, technicians, um, scientists, um, you know, finding the best technology to solve uh, the various problems that came up in uh, designing this, uh, this amazing machine. I think one of the most exciting things about all this, or maybe why it's captured the public's imagination, is because it's just unreservedly good news. You know, there's no real caveats. It was just international cooperation where, like you said, we pushed the the ability of our species to do something absolutely incredible. And it's really rare that we have anything like that. Usually it's like, oh, there's some good news, but there's a downside. Or here's some good news, but it's like ecologically terrible or something. This is just all good, you know. And when you think the telescope costs, what, $10 billion, that's nothing in the great scheme of things. We should be spending that every year on this stuff. Uh, I, I I agree with you, but uh, um, yeah, I I think it was it's 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 inspiring, and and and, and my personal experience uh, really has been very very positive in working with this collaboration um, on the on the what we call on the working floor. Uh, there was always this uh, um, willingness to work together. Uh, to and to solve the problem together with 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 this, with respect for each other, respect for each other, for other ideas. So, yeah, in in that respect, uh, it's, it's been really a good um, a, a good experience. Well, this is from a personal point of view, uh, but I think the 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 say the price of this uh, good collaboration, openness, both from. Uh, um, NASA and NISA and the Canadian Space to work together, finding what worked uh, and sometimes leave politics aside, uh, really paid off. Is it quite difficult to choose what to uh, choose to point the telescope at? Because at? I imagine there are different scientists have different interests or different things that they think are a priority and there might be yeah. some debate over which they want to have a look at. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so the Webb telescope, it's a, it's a general purpose uh, telescope, open time telescope. So scientists from all over the world can uh, propose observations. Uh, this uh, uh, happens two cycles, so more or less yearly, there's a call for proposals. So the, the, the telescope um, scientific operations managed by the uh, um, Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, the calls out for proposal, say to the community, send out your proposal, how would you use the web to do what? And that's uh, where lots of uh, scientists uh, um, scramble and uh, write, uh, you know, and get together and see what can we do and and, uh, and they scramble ideas and, uh, and then write a proposal. I say, okay, if you give me um, 50 hours uh, of, uh, of web, I will use a near spec to look at the, uh, the stars in the large magic line clouds because, uh, for example, for example. Uh, and then, and, uh, and, and there are, as you can imagine, there are more proposals that, are, that, that, that can be Executed within 
one year cycle. Uh, so let's say the scientists in total ask for more hours than there are in, uh, in, in one year uh, of operation. And so there is a committee. There's a committee of experts and uh, in independently selected that uh, look at the proposal and decide which are uh, the most interesting, the most likely to succeed and provide uh, good data. Amazing. Again, more international cooperation. Maybe we should put a proposal together for something. We absolutely should. What would you like to look at? Yeah. What would I like to look at? I don't know where I'd point it in the sky. Which object? Which, which type oh. of object? Without knowing oh. the direction, but which type of object would... It would, for me, it would have to be like a planet. You know, galaxies are beautiful and they're these like stunning, massive things, but they feel quite intangible because a gal- I don't think an average person can get their head around quite how big a galaxy is. You know, it's yeah. unfathomably yeah. huge. <laughs> I think I would go for galaxies, actually, because I think we can learn so much about um, the early universe and I kind of want to know about what happened in all that time. So actually, speaking of this, um, the James Webb will be looking back about 13 and a half billion years uh which theoretically is only a few hundred million years away from the birth of the universe um is it is it possible to look back even further with a more powerful telescope or could we ever actually see the beginning of everything is there anything to see you know what do you think would would happen with that this is a it's a complicated uh, um, uh, it's a complicated question. It's a fascinating question. Uh, so if you allow me, I'm gonna try to yeah go a little bit uh, in some detail. But uh, yeah, so um, the, how do we say? Uh, if you want to be completely correct, the web is not the mission which has looked further from us or to the earliest time. We've been mission that we call the, um, that we, that we have been looking at what we call the cosmic macro background radiation. Uh, there was a famous American mission called COVID and there was WMAP, uh, again, a NASA mission recently, well, recently, 10 years ago, <laughs> launched Planck, uh, also a mission to observe the cosmic microwave background. And that's what we call the eco of the Big Bang. Uh, so the Big Bang was this beginning of the universe, was extremely hot. Um, and uh, at a certain point, the temperature decreased uh, and the photons started propagating freely. So we we, can, we see what we call the, the last scattering surface when the universe, let's say, became transparent to light, was not so dense and hot like, like a bowl of, uh, of, of gas and, uh, and, uh, and energy, like a, bit, like a star, but, but you know, the photons start, pro- start propagating uh, freely. And, and we can see this, uh, these photons, they are extremely redshifted. And that's why we look at them in the microwave. So photons that were more or less in the visible uh, are uh, redshifted uh, by a factor of thousands. And uh, we see them in, uh, you know, um, a frequency between um, three to, I don't know, gigahertz to um, thousand of gigahertz, so hundreds of gigahertz, hundreds of gigahertz. and, and so this is, if you want, uh, in terms of photons, using photons, because one can also use other techniques like gravitational waves, but in terms of photons, this is in a way the, the furthest we can go. Uh, and these are about 300,000 years after the Big Bang, this last scattering interpret. 
but this is kind of a and 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 the big contribution of mission like WMAP and Planck and also COVID at the beginning was to see that in this this is not just a uniform ball of energy, but there are slight um, uh, disomogeneities in this ball of energy, and 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 this is what causes these are the gravitational disomogeneities which are what we call the seeds of the galaxy the seeds of the structure right if you have a perfect homogeneous ball and it expands then you don't have anything in the gravity doesn't kind of act it's all uniform and boring and uh, with this it is homogeneities gravity starts attracts matter or dark matter and energy and that's where the galaxy where we believe galaxies are born right from these these homogeneities that we see and uh, but it took time and, uh, and 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 with hubble we saw galaxy at like you say 12.5 13 billion light years ago and and they were there right so what happens between the 300,000 uh, years and about few hundred millions years after the Big Bang. A lot happened, you know, these galaxies start to grow and, and it's the first stars start to shine. But we have not seen that. We, 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 we have theoretical model, we have uh, computer simulations that reproduce this stage, but we don't have data from this period. And mission like the web are to push our vision to connect these points to, 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 to try to understand what's happening in these uh, few hundred million light years of time when, when um, yeah, when the galaxy were born and the galaxy is where we live. And so these are part of our, of the history of our origin. Yeah, on the, the topic of formation of galaxies, um, can you explain to us what uh, the kind of information we're getting from the telescope means for our understanding of the universe when we learn about the formation of galaxies? Right. Yes, thank you, because this is a good question to connect to this long story. <laughs> yes. So the, with the telescope, so we are really aiming at identifying the youngest object possible. So this is where we do deep fields. So we stare for a long time in the same direction to really reach the weakest the, the object, which are the furthest away, the, the galaxies which are further away. Um, and that's their the structure. Uh, so how much of a galaxy was there? You know, uh, you know, we know that they, as we go look back, they are most smaller and more uh, irregular than the beautiful grand structure we see in the universe around us. Uh, so how much was there at the time? Um, and then with the spectroscopy, what was going on in terms of star formation? You know, the star was shining, which elements? were already present. Can we see the star that was made only of hydrogen and helium, which would be the first stars, right? Because all the other elements are cooked inside the star. So the very first stars should have what, very little else than hydrogen and helium, if anything. No, nothing. <laughs> Just like one last follow-up to that. Um, has our understanding of galaxy formation changed since uh, James Webb started sending data back? Well, the, the, the scientists are really 
um, looking at the data very carefully, because of all we have said, right, uh, uh, the, the noise, the, this, all these complicated effects from the beautiful image you see uh, in the press and release to actually getting scientific data, there is always time. Uh, so the, the data, some of the data, uh, some of the images that you've seen are being scrutinized as we speak. Uh, some, some results are already uh, already came out, uh, and the people can see um, a lot of uh, activity, a lot of star formation um, seems to be happening in galaxies that are at redshift around seven. Uh, so very early in time, there is sign of a very active uh, star formation and uh, in low metallicity. So, you know, this is kind of uh, falling into the picture. Um, yeah, so as we speak, uh, things are, uh, yeah, publication are coming out. It must be very exciting for some people that have been working only with um, theoret theories and using computer models to try and work out what's happening to get this data back and think, oh, is it going to prove my theory correct? Yes, yes, it's very exciting, very exciting. And uh, and, 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 uh, and the scientists, that it, so it's not us, we are the instruments people, but the scientists are really telling us that the, that the telescope works better than ex that they even expected. And, uh, and so this is why there is also so much excitement in the community, because it's clear that, that there will be very good data coming out. Um, science, science, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting it's a funny process. You, you start from an idea that you have, like you say, you have a model and you have mass simulation. You think that things look should go like that. So you're very happy when you find data that uh, um, that confirm or that they're consistent with your hypothesis that you know your your understanding is advancing. But sometimes your understanding advances even more when you have something you don't understand. Or it, it will take time. It will take time. Uh, I mean clear example is what we call dark energy and dark, dark matter, which are a way to say we don't know much about this, uh, this entity, right? But, but, but to understand about that, uh, it means that we will make big progress. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting process in this respect. You can hear more about Giovanna's incredibly fascinating and exciting work uh, when she comes to join us at Data Summit on the 3rd and 4th of November in Edinburgh at the EICC. And we absolutely cannot wait to have her join us. And with that said, I think it might be time for some wild speculation. Yes, this is the part of the show where we ask our guests to go beyond the scope of their research or expertise and engage in some wild speculation about their field. Giovanna, in your wildest dreams, what would you like the James Webb Space Telescope to discover? I think the signature... Oh, two things, but certainly it would be fun... You know, how do you say... Um, uh, uh, a Kepler moment, a revolutionary moment, if we could see the signature of life uh, in, uh, um, in the atmosphere of uh, Earth-like planet or rocky planets. Uh, and by signature of life, I mean the, um, the, 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 the traces of the gases that we think is associated with, uh, with life. Uh, I think that would be, yeah, 
um, it, it, it won't be easy. I'm not sure it can happen. No, it's, it's speculation, it's speculation. <laughs> uh, but it will be, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and if Webb won't do it, we will need to build a bigger telescope. <laughs> more powerful most maybe specific for this type of investigation yeah i think everyone's waiting on that you know anytime there's any advance in space or anytime we find something interesting out there the first question that the daily mail asks is is this aliens and so far the answer has been no and everyone's been super disappointed but one day it will be and it'll be great yeah, yeah, and of course, uh, aliens, you know, life, you know, we, maybe we're talking about alien plants, right? Because, of course, we will only see the elements, so we could see a lot of oxygen, methane, so, so there's, uh, you know, there are, uh, there is, uh, there are specialists, uh, uh, bio, um, bio exoplanet scientists, right? They, they model what could be, you know, real signature of, uh, of presence of life, but could be, you know, we don't necessarily knew whether there will be, uh, you know, intelligence or, uh, but then we could look for your uh, um, uh, megastructure, of course. <laughs> it's a shame that if we do discover anything like this, it's likely to be billions and billions of light years away. And unless they're far better at self-preservation than we are, they might be extinct by now. You know, civilization could have risen and fallen. So we could find a universe absolutely teeming with intelligent life billions of years ago, and now we're just super late to the party. Well, uh, in uh, these exoplanets we're looking at uh, are um, hundred uh, light years away, or we will look at even uh, much closer planets. I mean, this is all in our galaxy, and it's all in our neighborhood because uh, uh, these are weak signal. We 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 stay nearby, so so in that respect, uh, yeah, we you know we could be just seeing uh, their uh, old uh, television program. <laughs> Well, it's got to be better than ours. So, I mean, hopefully they're going through something in the golden age of television. Yeah, I'll flick through all the channels that we've got on uh, TV here and be like, nah, I'm not feeling any of these. I'll switch to the alien channel and watch the... I've got every streaming service known to man and there's still nothing to watch. So I need to start looking outside of the solar system. Something that's unknown to man. Exactly. Mm. We're incredibly excited to have Dr. Giardino joining us at DataFest this year. And you can hear much more about her work on the James Webb Space Telescope on the 3rd and 4th of November at the EICC in Edinburgh. Don't forget that listeners can use the code TLQPODCAST, all caps, to receive an exclusive 20% off DataFest ticket prices. So go and get yours now at datafest.global. And finally, on to the last question. Each episode, we pose our listeners a question and invite people from around the world to offer their thoughts. We'll read the most interesting ones out on a future episode. Our question this week is, what discovery that the James Webb Space Telescope could make would be the most significant for humanity? And that's it from us today. We'll be back next time with more insight, innovation, and wild speculation. Feel free to drop us an email to say hello or to suggest a topic we should cover, make corrections if you like. Uh, you can reach us at datafest at thedatalab.com or you can find us on Twitter at datafest underscore. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another episode of The Last Question. <laughs>